This message by Sam Shin, entitled "Nehemiah's God," was recorded at Wellspring Church on January twenty seventh, twenty nineteen. The text for this message is Nehemiah chapter one, verse eleven b to chapter two, verse eight. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the book of Nehemiah. We will begin reading at the very end of chapter one. Hear now the word of the Lord. Now I was cupbearer to the king. In the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence, and the king said to me, "Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? There is nothing but sadness of the heart." And then I was very much afraid, and I said to the king, "Let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city?" The place of my father's graves lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Then the king said to me, "What are you requesting?" And so I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, "If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it." And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, "How long will you be gone, and when will you return?" And so it pleased the king to send me, when I had given him a time. And he said, and I said to the king, "If it pleases the king, let letters be given to me, or given me to the governors of the province of beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah." And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, and for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of God was upon me. So far, the reading of God's word. You may be seated. If you were here last week, we began the series on Nehemiah, and last week we discovered that Nehemiah was quite burdened over the ruins of his homeland, and in fact, he was so troubled that he wept and prayed for four months. And that was part and parcel with his character, but it wouldn't be something that you would imagine someone like him would do because he was a man of action. And you will see this throughout Nehemiah. I do think that there is this paradox that so often we think of when we think about discerning God's will, is that it is a、um, a battle between trusting God. But at the same time, taking action steps and looking for circumstances to dictate how we're supposed to discern, how to decide over the the very big issues of life. And when we look at this chapter in particular, I hope you'll see that, in actuality, understanding God's providence and as well as circumstances that are in the midst of our lives are not contradictory to one another. But in actuality, that they work very well together, perfectly, you could say. One person who notes this is J.I. Packer. He、uh, is a theologian, author, wrote really a Christian classic called "Knowing God," and I'm sure some of you have read this. And he talks about the fact that if we want to do anything that honors God, we have to pray. I want to quote him here, and he says, "Prayer centers on the hollowing of God's name." And the doing of His will, 
has among its other effects a reflex effect. It purifies the heart. It purges our attitudes and motives. It melts down all the self-centeredness, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance that as fallen creatures we bring to it and programs us to work humbly in a God-honoring, God-fearing, God-dependent way. So prayer really, and I like the way he describes it, it's a, it's a reflex effect. You think that in actuality you're praying to God for all these things, but what you don't realize is happening when you actually do it sincerely before the Lord is that it takes away all of your self-centeredness. It, it drives away that desire to think, I can do this all on my own. And so to do anything of import in this world, to raise children, to labor at work, to solve a very difficult conflict in your life, to prepare sermons. It is possible to do all of that without God. And the way we know we're doing it without God is without prayer. When prayerlessness is a part of our lives, it really is indicative of a person who is self-reliant and self-sufficient. And so prayer forces us to stop and actually recognize that we need God. We really need God in this world. And we need to see him as our priority, as all that matters to us ultimately most. And so I want to explore this today through this chapter. And we're going to look at Nehemiah through three parts of his life. First is his call in verses 11b to chapter, of chapter 1 to 12, uh, chapter 2, verse 3. Secondly, we'll look at his faith in verses 4 through 8 in chapter 2. And then finally, his view of God as a whole, God, in verse 8b. First, we'll look at his call. Nehemiah is called by God, and we talked about the prayer part. Now it's action. So months later, he's called to act, and he does so by wrestling with this tension of both providence and circumstances. And again, it's not so clear per se. It's not as though those titles are there, but that's sort of how he operates. It's how he lives and how he thinks. And you see it naturally flowing out through the unfolding of this particular scenario. So who is Nehemiah? We have to start there. And I talked about the fact that we would discuss this today, and we are. He is, according to verse 11b, the last part of verse 11 of chapter 1, he is a cupbearer to the king. And a cupbearer is not a butler. A cupbearer was someone who literally took the king's cup of wine and he would drink it himself first and then pass it over to the king. And if you can sort of guess, it's because if that cup is poisoned, he would die first. And that was his job. He would make sure that the king was okay. Usually, they wouldn't get a slave to do that job. And here's the reason why is that a slave had perhaps ulterior motives, anger, angst towards the Persian Empire and, and by proxy the king. And so you wouldn't get someone who perhaps had some sort of bad ill will towards the king, even if it's sort of offhand. But instead, you would get someone trusted. I mean, it would be someone who was a government official, someone who had climbed the ranks. And so a cupbearer is not just any random old person. Because 
that person could slip a poison in right before he's about to give it to the king. So you really needed someone whom the king trusted, whom everyone trusted. And it was a dangerous job, obviously, but it was an important one, and it was one that required loyalty. Obviously, then, Nehemiah had a track record with the most powerful man in the world at this time. Uh, A man who basically controlled all the kingdoms from Egypt all the way to India. It's a huge expanse of territory. That's how powerful the Persian Empire was at this place, at this time in history. And Nehemiah had literally the ear of the king, the mouth of the king. He was right there with him all the time. So Nehemiah is in the perfect place at the perfect time to be able to share with the king what his concerns were. And when we look at the Bible, it's not just in Nehemiah, but you see it in the book of Esther. You see it in any story regarding David or Abraham, Joseph. There are always two running threads throughout the Bible. The first is that there are circumstances. There are all these different unfolding events that take place. People, historical figures who have lived a particular life experience. They have a certain mindset. They have their own intellect. They have their own way of thinking. So you have people, but at the same time, you also have this undercurrent of God's providence that God is sovereignly in control. And both are happening throughout the Bible and throughout history. And so in this same way, God uses Nehemiah. He uses his talents. He uses his gifts. He uses his character and he's building it throughout. He uses his circumstances. And if you didn't know God, you would think, oh, it's just pure luck. It's sheer luck. He's at the right place at the right time. But in actuality, this chapter shows us that it's more than just luck. It's more than just circumstances that God is orchestrating all these things, utilizing the practical, circumstantial realities of Nehemiah to rescue his people. And so we must never forget that God is the one who placed Nehemiah sovereignly there, providentially there. He brings him to this place where after many months of praying, he's before the one man who could actually truly save Israel But we also see that really it's about God saving Israel, even in the midst of their rebellion, which was many, many centuries of utter rebellion against God. But there are also circumstances besides God's providence. Circumstantially, there's Nehemiah's face. I mean, that's the circumstance. If we read again, it says, Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart, then I was very much afraid. He was afraid, Nehemiah was, because you did not look sad in front of the king. I mean, he was there to make the king happy. Everyone there was there to make the king happy. And so to come in front of the king's face with anything but happiness was an affront to the king. The king who could basically, with one word, say, off with your head. And so... I don't think Nehemiah, after four months of praying, came up with a plan saying, I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to look really sad. And I'm going to look so sad that the king is going to ask why I was sad. And then 
I'm going to be able to ask him for whatever I want. It's That's not how it worked. Rather, the king saw Nehemiah's heart. His heart was burdened. And perhaps after four months of praying and fasting and mourning, he probably, like many of us, is not that great of a compartmentalizer. Maybe you could do it for a while. Maybe you could put on a, a mask, a, a, a good face. And I'm sure he had to do that for all that time. But eventually, his heart shone through. And he couldn't hide it anymore, what was burdening his soul. And so he comes one day in particular before the king, and he is absolutely just struck with what is on his heart, the concerns of his heart laid bare for the king to see. He was praying twice a day, you can imagine, twice a day for to, with the longing to help Israel, but there was no plan, no solution, nothing except this is who he is. And Nehemiah's own face and the king's response could never have been predicted by Nehemiah. But God uses natural circumstances and occurrences to bring about his will when God, when his people trust him. Circumstances are not the primary or only means of discerning God's will, but it is definitely something God uses to confirm his heart for us. Now, I think when I consider this, all of us are constantly asking the question, how do I know what God's will is for me? And you hear that question time and time again. When we are perhaps considering entering into a relationship, a meaningful one, maybe a mission, a particular vocation, maybe a call to ministry or to life, it's really the, the question of our soul, how do I discern what God wants of me? And you might be praying, you might be seeking counsel from others, but God, as we know, according to this text, he providentially uses everything, our prayers, our hearts, our personality, our experiences, our character, and all the circumstances that God brings about, and they're intertwined with God's providential will. They're founded on our relationship. See, they're not distinct from one another. And I do think that the danger is when we think that the circumstances and God's providence have some sort of great big wall in between that keep the two from connecting. And so we're either looking for how is God being glorified or what are the circumstances and the doors that are opening for me. But you look at Nehemiah and you see the story and you see both happening concurrently and intertwined. And that really is so often the order of events of how we discern, how do we live? How do we make decisions? How do we consider what God wants of me? Because for Nehemiah, the decision-making and the, the timing of things is not based on a strategy or plan. And it's not, I need to pray for four months and then I need to look a certain way and I need to figure out how to strategically get the king to be inclined to my will. Rather, it's living life and trusting God and believing that he is everything that the Bible promises him to be. The foundation is on our relationship. And prayer is an outflow of that relationship. Prayer is not a one part of 
are checkboxes of how do we figure out what God wants for me, but it's a regular outflow, an effect of our relationship to Christ himself. And as J.I. Packer notes, prayer melts self-centeredness. That's why it is so important to stop and pray. In fact, as I was preparing this message, there are, you don't understand how many times as I would read something and study something, it just was so convicting. Wow, I'm not doing this. I need to stop right now and pray. And I do this time and time again. And it's not the most efficient way of doing something, at least from the way that we think of it. But that's the whole point of prayer. And J.I. Packer is absolutely right. Prayer melts away your self-sufficiency. This sense of, I can do this with my own willpower and my own intellect and experience. Only then, when that self-sufficiency is melted away, are we able to discern God's will for us. Because that's the challenge of our hearts, is that more often than not, we're actively trying to engage God based on what I believe is to be best, to be wise, to be right, to be discerning. And only prayer causes us to cease striving and to know that he is God. Be still and know that I am God, Psalm 46. So until we're able to recognize that, I actually need to stop here. And I need to recognize that my character is being shaped if your character is not shaped by God putting him above all things, then there's no way we will be able to discern his will. And the means by which that character is shaped so often is prayer. It's not an easy thing, but it is critical. And my friends, this isn't to, um, to say that prayer in and of itself saves someone. But it isn't, again, an outflow of our relationship, of our natural relationship. And the end result is that we will align ourselves with God and his will. We see this exhibited most as we move forward in the text of Nehemiah's faith. In verses 4 through 8, we find out that it's not, again, this strategic planning to get the king to ask a certain question. But instead, it's Nehemiah's natural response to how things should be. And he says, Then the king said to me, What are you requesting? And these are very important words that follow right after. So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. I don't think we can really appreciate Nehemiah's request without understanding how dangerous it was for Nehemiah to request this one thing. Why was it so dangerous for Nehemiah? First of all, you have to read a little bit, actually, the whole book of Ezra to understand why it's so dangerous. In fact, in the Hebrew Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah are one book. And it's in the English Bible that we have it separated into two, two parts. But Ezra and Nehemiah really go together because they tell the same story in a sort of one thread to the other. So if you ever read Nehemiah, try reading Ezra first, then Nehemiah. And in Ezra, what we see is the precursor to what's happening right here in chapters 1 and 2. Israel 
A first wave of exiles had returned back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And Ezra, the scribe who was writing about that, was a part of that first group of exiles. And so they rebuilt the temple. And now what was left is to rebuild the wall that was going to protect Jerusalem from the dangers of the people around the area who wanted to destroy the Israelites and destroy that temple. So they start rebuilding the wall, but those who are opposed to the rebuilding of the temple and the wall and the protection of Israel, they write a letter to Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, this king. And this is the letter they wrote in Ezra 4, 7 through 16. To Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river, send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundations. Now, be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in, in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. So Artaxerxes receives this letter from enemies opposed to the Jews. And so what does he do? What does Artaxerxes do? He receives the letter and he automatically orders the building to be ceased. All building gone. Even though previous king Cyrus had determined that Israel could rebuild the building and uh, rebuild the wall and the temple. Artaxerxes was convinced. He was afraid that these Jews had gone back, just like those who had written the letter had said, that they had gone back to rebel against him. And what does a king fear most? They fear rebellion. They fear not just rebellion, but the spread of rebellion. Because if one little outback people group called the Jews were to rebel and Persia were to give into that, then another group would rebel and another and another, and it would suddenly lead to the chain reaction of rebellion. So kings were very, very particular about any hint of rebellion. And so he orders this group of people to stop building. So then you have as well this king and most kings are not looking for their influence and their kingdoms to be um, limited. Kings want and emperors want their kingdoms increased. And after all, why would they build a wall in the first place? Who would they hide against most? So for Artaxerxes, he might have been convinced and thinking, that's against me. He's building that wall to protect themselves against my rule. Imagine then Nehemiah, who knows this, who's praying for four months and he's about to ask the one thing that he thinks, boy, the, the, he's going to hate this. This is going to be my head. You could see why he's so afraid to ask this question. So what is Nehemiah's response right when he's asking this question? Notice what he does. He prays. So I prayed to the God of heaven. Now, if you look very carefully, you'll notice that he's not on his hands and knees. He's not on his knees and clasping his hands and closing his eyes. 
The prayer is literally probably about two seconds long. It's he asks, he prays, there's a response. I mean, actually, the king asks, prays, response, right? So prayer, I do think that there are times, as we see in verse uh, 6 of chapter 1, that sometimes prayer is very much a set time, set place. So this is not to say there's no place for set time, set place prayers. Nehemiah says, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. And I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants. Nehemiah probably prayed in a regular place every day, every night. It's what sometimes we call quiet time or prayer time. So this is not an argument against having a set time prayer. But instead, it's to say what, alongside with the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6.18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. Prayers come in various forms. Sometimes an hour long on your knees in a prayer closet. Sometimes hiking in the woods. Sometimes one second long in an hour of desperate need. And for Nehemiah, because prayer, again, is not a ritual. It's not just something he has to do because he's a believer of God. It's a natural occurrence to his relationship. Just as much as a husband and wife talk to one another, not because they have to, although maybe you do, I don't know. I hope not. I hope it's because of your covenantal relationship that conversation flows out of that relationship. And so too with Nehemiah and God. He prays because he's in relationship, covenantal relationship with him. And he talks short, long. One second, one hour, ten hours. It, it's not about the time. It's not about the place. But it's about the relationship. And literally in a matter of one second, this prayer is answered. Can you imagine? So again, we must not equate the length of prayer to an answer to prayer. See, that's, that's the dangerous heart of a works-based legalistic heart, is that God only operates based on how we think an investment of time or effort should be. If I put in an hour's work, I should get an hour's output. I should be paid an hour's worth of wages. But if that were the case, then the gospel would be completely undermined because we could never repay back Jesus for dying on the cross for us. It's not how God operates. He wants relationship. And out of that relationship flows all sorts of prayers. And sometimes the one second prayer is just as meaningful as the one hour prayer. But if we're trying to weigh the two and think, well, we need to do one or the other, then we're missing the point. It's not about the amount or the effort. It's about the heart. And when the heart truly is wiped away, melted away with self-sufficiency and self-centeredness, when that is gone, then yes, God will answer the one-second prayer and He does it joyfully and delightfully. And in this instance, He does it. Verse 6, And the king said to me, How long will you be gone? And when will you be ret returned? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. I can't emphasize this enough. Prayer is one of the primary means we express our relationship to God. 
It is not our membership card to Christianity. Instead, it's an ongoing, engaged, emotional encounter with God. And I mean emotional this way. I want to continue quoting Jay Packer. He says, We must not lose sight of the fact that knowing God is an emotional relationship as well as an intellectual and volitional one and could not indeed be a deep relationship between persons were it not so. I absolutely believe that we are to worship God with our minds, intellectually, rationally. We must process through hard questions, through facts, through determining circumstances. But that's not the only means. We worship God in spirit and truth. We worship God with our wills and with our emotions, with our hearts. And for Nehemiah, that's exactly how he prayed. He prayed as though he were encountering the living God, regardless of the time frame or the means or the place. That's what happens when you actually know someone that you can spend even a moment with that person and it fills your heart and your heart flutters. If you delight in that person, spending an hour, it doesn't matter. It's just being with that person. And that's who Nehemiah was. That was what his faith was like. But you don't get to that place until you understand whom you are praying to. That Nehemiah was praying to the living God, the Lord of all, and so verse 8b, the last part of this text says, And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. So what do we learn about Nehemiah's God from this verse? First is that God is sovereign. God is sovereign. The task, impossible. Nehemiah was asking for something that would essentially work against Artaxerxes, would also contradict what his initial command was. So from a, from a logical, rational perspective, if you were trying to counsel Nehemiah and say, Nehemiah, if you were to ask, should I talk to the king about this? You would say, absolutely not. You're going to lose your head. You are putting yourself into vital harm. And so Nehemiah instead doesn't do that. He knows that Despite the fact that this is the king, he ultimately worships the king of kings. He believes in Proverbs 21.1 that says, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. If we only could see that for ourselves, that your boss, the President of the United States, Congress, Supreme Court, dictators around the world, we sometimes get so overwhelmed by circumstances and the world events. I'm currently reading a book called The Insanity of God. It's about a missionary who was in Somalia during in the 1990s to 2000s. And if you know anything about Somalia, that's when Black Hawk Down was written. And he was in Mogadishu during that time as a Western missionary in one of the most dangerous places in the world. And I'm reading this book, and it's quite both disturbing and hopeful. It's a reminder that God is truly king, even when it is most dark, most bleak. And until we believe Proverbs 21.1, and until we see what Nehemiah is speaking to, we will be overwrought by world news, by a doctor's health exam, by our financial statements. It's so easy to be completely wrecked 
and ruined by circumstances when we forget who our God is. But until we recognize that God truly is sovereign, then we will have peace. God is not just sovereign, though. He is good. His goodness was upon Nehemiah. The good hand of my God was upon me. And we must never forget what the Apostle Paul says in regards to this good God over our lives in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. Nehemiah knew this to be true. That even though he was asking for something so dire, he knew that God was ultimately good. And he was in his hands. Nehemiah, if we, as we will see throughout, is that this is just the beginning. The story continues. And it's a really difficult story. There are many things that go wrong for Nehemiah. His life is threatened. It's not as though the good hand of God is upon me. I have no more troubles anymore. And everyone listens to me so well. And the wall gets built so easily. And I get as much money as I want. And it's not, it's not like that at all. In fact, there's so much trouble, so much opposition. His life is threatened. Um, the very people he's caring for rebels against him, betrays him. It's a really hard story, Nehemiah's life. His life is hard. But in the midst of the difficulty of life, God is still sovereign and he's still good and he's still in control. And Nehemiah trusts that despite the difficulty, that God has not abandoned him. He's not forsaken him. He's not left him. And as well, he agrees with the Apostle Paul that he uses even bad things and good things. In fact, Paul says, all things work together for good. All things. We're going to see that throughout Nehemiah, that he trusts that, that God is good despite all things. Randy Alcorn tells a story of a three-year-old boy who swallows poison. And the father calls poison control. And they say to him, you have to get him to the hospital. And whatever you do, don't let him fall asleep. If he falls asleep, he will die. So it's a cold winter night. His father rushes him and the boy to the car, sits beside him in the front seat, rolls down all the windows, and the boy's head starts dropping. So the father starts slapping him in the face. And the boy starts crying and then his head starts nodding again. And he slaps him in the face again and again and again, all the way to the hospital. Now, to this boy, what is the father doing to him? The father is, this is a mean father. He's abusive. He doesn't care for him. He doesn't really love him. But we know that's not the case. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The father has his ultimate good. His, the father loves his son, loves his son so much that he's willing to even put him through trial to save his life. This is our God. We have to see that God does this for us, but it starts with believing that God is sovereign and he is good and he's not out there to punish us or to hurt us. But sometimes because of our own hearts and our own heart's condition, and sometimes because of the brokenness of the world and the realities of sin in this world, that evil things still do happen. Cancer still does strike. Tragic events, car accidents, 
bad things, financial troubles still happen, but that doesn't mean that God is not good. If our kids could only understand by putting in the good work of study now, it will lead to this. And I'm sure some of us as parents think that way. If you only understand, work hard today and you will reap the benefits while they're busy playing Fortnite. You know, or they're eating a big candy all the time and they're, the cavities are coming, the cavities are coming. Stop eating the candy. It's not good, but it tastes so good in the moment. A good father knows oh so well what is ultimately good. The last thing is that we know that um, this is our God, is that God is Savior according to Nehemiah. And you might not see this so clearly, but it just really hit me like a ton of bricks when I was reading this chapter. I don't think it's an accident that Nehemiah uses the phrase, good hand of my God was upon me. I looked up that phrase throughout the Bible and I read essentially every single passage where that phrase was in the Bible. And there were two two ideas that come about from that phrase throughout the rest of the Old Testament. The first is that that phrase always depicts God's power. The hand of God represents the power of God, the might of God. The fact that he could, with his hand, just simply put the stars into place. It represents the enormous, infinitely powerful might of our God. But the second idea of the hand of God was also in the judgment of God, in the execution of that judgment. One instance of this is Psalm 75, verses 5 through 8. And there are many, but I want to give you this one. But it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For the for in the hand of the Lord... There is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours it out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. God's hand, the very hand of God that built the world, that creates, that protects, that comforts, just like a father or a mother, a parent, who with one hand can guard, is the same hand that also disciplines. God's hand is... The same one that creates also judges. I don't think it's an accident that this same hand also holds the cup of wine that Jesus held. The cup that he asked James and John, who said, I could drink from that cup. And Jesus says, no, you really can't drink from that cup. It's the same cup that Jesus knew bore the excruciating agony of God's judgment. And that's what the cup always symbolizes. The cup of wine is the cup of wrath, the cup of God's judgment. Matthew 20, 28 through 20, 20 through 28 describes that. God's full judgment on us as sinners that Jesus actually asked in Matthew 26, 39, Father, would you pass this cup from me? Pass the full judgment of sin that is meant for all these people, your people, would you pass that from me? But not my will, but your will be done. So he prays at Gethsemane. It's the very prayer and the very idea we celebrate at communion. Every time when I or the presider raises that cup, he says, this is the cup of my blood. This cup actually is the symbol of God's full judgment 
against us. And when we drink of that wine, we're saying, Jesus, thank you for bearing my sin by your bloodshed for me. All of my rebellion against God, my rejection of God was born by this bloodshed, this cup that represents that. When I read Nehemiah, it just dawned on me, he is a cupbearer. That I don't think it's a coincidence, but it's a common thread throughout the Bible that Nehemiah, a Jewish slave, this cupbearer who tasted wine for the king to possibly die in the place of the king would be pointing to a saving king who would die in place of people like me and you. Nehemiah as a slave dies for a king. Our king dies for slaves to sin. And we were all once enslaved to sin. In Nehemiah, God is not only sovereign. He's also good. He's our savior. And so we respond to that reality by prayer and fasting. You know, this coming week, we are going to be praying and fasting as a church. I don't want you to do this because, well, it's my duty to do this, or the church said we should do this, or I should do it, or that sounds like a good discipline, or I need to lose some weight anyway, or, uh, you know, um, I've been, I've been on social media too much anyway. I think it's really good for me to get off. All those reasons, they're going to be probably impacts to fasting and prayer, but If that's your fundamental reason to do it, then don't do it. But if it's like Nehemiah, you see that this God of ours is sovereign. He is so good to me. He saved me. And as an outflow, as a, as a response to the relationship that I have with him, I've realized that I've been overcome by looking at my phone all day. Or checking or watching Warriors games and watching them beat the Celtics. Or I've been focused so much on enjoying good food that I need to fast. I just want to take some time to focus on him. So I want to encourage you to consider this week. Would you consider fasting? Praying unto the Lord, building relationship with him, coming to him and Worshipping Him, glorifying Him, adoring Him, but also thinking, what are the things in my life that keep me from Him? Maybe it's coffee. Maybe it's exercise. Maybe it's health food. Honestly, it could be health food. It could be anything. But something in my life, I just love shopping so much, so that's all I do. I look at research websites. I mean, that's maybe that's something that's in my heart. And so all of these things, can we take even a week to say, I, I want to let this go. But if I really want to encourage you to say, maybe a meal, maybe it's a meal a day. Maybe it's for the whole week. But all of this is to remind me and to see that I actually settle too much for far, for joys that don't actually satisfy, for all these things, entertainments that keep me from enjoying this great God. So I hope you join us this week as we pray together and as we reflect on the mercies of our God, the God of Nehemiah, who is so gracious and so loving. Let's pray together. Father, we 
acknowledge that our hearts are far too often distracted and it keeps us from remembering that you are the God who saves. So thankful for Nehemiah. This man, in many ways, he he's not like Abraham or Joseph. He just seems like an ordinary person. And yet, because of prayer and his relationship with you, he was willing to do that which was risky to his life. And through it, you saved your people. How often you do that, O oh Lord. So you took this slave, and through it, you saved the life of so many, including as he drank from that wine cup so often, the life of a king. But we are not amazed by that. Instead, we are amazed by the king of kings drinking the wine that was filled with the judgment, righteous judgment of God, that we, our own rebellion, our own self-centeredness, contributed to that wine. And Jesus, you drank from that to save those who were enslaved to sin, people like us, so that we are no longer slaves, but a son and a daughter and heirs, co-heirs. So we praise you and I pray that as we take this communion, it would not be a ritual. And as we fast and pray, they would not be duties, but instead delights of our souls because of a right relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.